Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Joseph Liao, our 13th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Professor Liao will be delivering his second lecture titled, Southeast Asia in a Shifting Global Order, Grasping the Nettle or Groping in the Dark. Following his lecture, Professor Liao will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Professor Barry Desker, Distinguished Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies and Nanyang Professor of Practice at the Nanyang Technological University. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. Thank you for joining us today at the auditorium. Please be reminded to switch your mobile phones to silent mode. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. <laughs> it will also be recorded and uploaded onto the IPS website and our social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here at the auditorium today, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We will also like to hear your views on the event. There will be a link in the feed at the end of the lecture, which you can click on to submit your feedback. So without further ado, let's invite Professor Liao to start his second lecture. Professor Liao, please. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you again for uh, coming down to, uh, to spend your afternoon uh, with me. Um, I must say I'm a bit, uh, uh, as Hokkien say, kanchiong, or anxious today because I see a few of my ex-bosses uh, in, in the audience. So there's going to be added scrutiny. Um, but uh, jokes aside, uh, thank you again for coming. So for those of you who tuned in to the first lecture or were here for the first lecture, you recall that I started um, this lecture series by talking about U.S.-China relations. Um, and I had suggested that one of the things at risk in the wake of the sharpening great power competition between the U.S. and China was uh, this thing called the global order. So in this second lecture, I would like to expand on this. I hope to do so by sharing some thoughts on the, the nature, the state, and the fate of this thing called a global order, what I think is happening to it, the impact of its changes on Southeast Asia, and what the region and Singapore must do in response. The American-led post-World War II global order, which underpins international affairs today, is by no means perfect. But on balance, it has benefited many in terms of its provision of stability and public goods, not to mention a global financial and trading system that formed the foundation for economic development and growth, particularly after the Cold War. Its imperfections and problems, however, have, laid, have been laid bare by recent developments, prompting speculation that the global order is on the verge of falling apart. This will be our point of entry this afternoon. <clears throat> Writing in the 1920s, the Italian neo-Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci famously proclaimed, the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. This is a time of monsters. As we look around us today, Gramsci's words seem perhaps eerily prescient. An all too common refrain that we hear is that the global order is fracturing 
as familiar structures of finance, industry, government and diplomacy seem to be slowly coming apart at the seams. Here are some views from major world leaders to that effect. From Wang Yi, State Councillor and Foreign Minister of China. With human society facing multiple crises, global governance undergoing profound changes, and the international order confronted with severe challenges, countries around the world are looking for answers, and humanity is required to make the right choice. In a recent speech at the School of Advanced International Studies, Johns Hopkins University, US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, what we're experiencing now is more than a test of the post-Cold War order. It's the end of it. So we find ourselves at what President Biden calls an inflection point. One era is ending, a new one is beginning, and the decisions that we make now will shape the future for decades to come. French President Emmanuel Macron. The international order is now weakened and we have a responsibility to preserve it and at the same time to reinvent it in light of the realities of the 21st century. Back home, in his National Day rally speech earlier this year, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong shared his own views on the precarious state of the global order. He said, and I quote, The war in Europe rages on. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a continuing human tragedy and an assault on international norms and values. It is a cautionary warning to the rest of the world never to take peace for granted and a reminder to us of the vital importance of a strong SAF. Meanwhile, the global economic order is fraying, globalization is weakening, supply chains are splitting up, countries are layering on multiple protectionist measures. This hurts all countries, but especially small, open trading nations like ourselves. Needless to say, political leaders are not the only ones wringing their hands. Major corporate leaders like Maurice Chung, the founder of TSMC, have also weighed in. Chung said recently, globalization is almost dead and free trade is almost dead. A lot of people still wish they would come back, but I don't think they will come back. By these accounts then, we, the world, are at a crossroads. So as various political, social, and economic forces contrive to push back against unbridled globalization and interdependence in the process undermining the prevailing global order. But what really is this thing called global order? Is it in crisis? And if so, why? And where is it headed? And where is Southeast Asia in all this, in terms of how our region is coping with and seeking to manage this state of flux. So what are we referring to when we talk about the global order? In its essence, the term refers to the arrangement of power, rules and norms in an international system that serves to govern the behaviour of states and other international actors and that shape and structure patterns of activity, interaction and relationships between them against the backdrop of globalization. Now, I would suggest that there are a few notable features to this thing we call global order. The first can be called subject matter. 
The global order encompasses many issues and concerns. These range from security, trade, finance, public health, especially in the wake of COVID, technology, etc. Because the issues at stake are so wide-ranging and diverse, they lend an amorphous quality to the global order. Basically, it can be pretty much what we want it to mean, to cover pretty much what we want it to cover. The second is its geographic scope. By definition, the global order is, well, global. What this means is that whether we are talking about rules, norms, or the institutional aspects of global order, we are referring to something that has broad international relevance or is of global concern. Rules in global trade, for instance, or global pandemic preparedness, such as was the case barely a couple of years ago. Of course, there may be regional dynamics involved, but essentially, we are talking about things on a global scale. Third, global order also finds expression in the architecture of multilateral institutions established to create, propagate and enforce these rules and norms. So, for example, we have the UN or the G20 that looks at an entire raft of issues from a global perspective, or we have issue-specific international institutions like the WTO, WHO, World Bank, and so on and so forth. Fourth, apart from being this dense and complex system, from a philosophical perspective, global order can also be said to be an outcome. This is by virtue of the fact that its existence and purpose is directed to the end of establishing order as opposed to disorder, chaos and anarchy. And a final point, an important feature of the current global order is how it has been underwritten by American military and economic power. Let me elaborate further. The reason why the US is so dominant in global affairs today is basically because it won the Second World War. Of course, there were other victors from that global conflict, but none was as strong as the US at that point. The war decimated the Soviet Union and China and brought the curtain down on British, French and Dutch colonialism. In contrast, the US was the only country that was more powerful at the end of the war than it was at the beginning of it. And it was on the back of this accumulated military, economic and industrial capacity that the US could go on about building, could go about building a global order along the lines of what it believed to be best for America and the world. Even then, it was really not until the collapse of the Soviet Union and with it all its pretensions of providing an alternative order that the unipolar moment was ushered in and US dominance well and truly cemented. Now, contemporary discussions about the global order frequently describe it as the liberal international order and or the rules-based order. Both these concepts have become accepted shorthand as descriptions of the norms, rules and institutions alluded to earlier, 
that frame contemporary international affairs. They also tend to be used interchangeably, although if you pass them, there are some obvious distinctions, perhaps even contra-distinctions. For example, between the concepts of liberal on the one hand and rules on the other, one connotes restraints, while the other, the absence of restraints. At any rate, the point is that we see leaders making frequent reference to one or the other in their speeches. They appear with greater frequency in formal documents and statements, and commentators talk about how they are being challenged or rejected, and hence have to be defended. But the ubiquity of these concepts belies the fact that they are contestable and indeed contested in terms of who gets to define the parameters and terms of order, what rules, norms and principles they encompass, and whose interests they reflect. Take the liberal international order. It got its name from the norms and values its architects advanced, which are broadly liberal in both the economic and political sense of the term. Hence, we are talking not only about freedom of trade and commerce, but also freedom of movement of people and ideas, freedom of speech, and freedom of thought, all of which the Western world would consider as enshrined in their conception of liberal democracy, the bedrock of their belief in human progress, global peace, and the universality, if not supremacy, of their values. But the view from, the out, from outside the Western world looks a little different. For starters, the liberal international order was really neither liberal nor international. It certainly wasn't so at its point of conception. It is difficult to talk about this order being truly liberal or having liberal roots. After all, the principles of open markets and free trade sit uncomfortably with the illiberal history of colonialism and racism encountered by many Western societies. By the way, such racial undertones are still evident today. One recalls the ill-advised attempt by a former Trump administration senior official to describe US-China competition as a clash between Caucasian and non-Caucasian civilizations. The fact that the official was herself non-Caucasian just made it that much more ironic. Consider too how some liberal commentators instinctively cast the Russia-Ukraine war as a body blow to all that the liberal international order purportedly stands for. Providing a vivid illustration of this, an editor from the New Left Review, no less, recently wrote, and I quote, The pitch of hysteria is as high as anything after 9-11. The free world, civilization, good and evil, all hang in a balance once again, unquote. A bit melodramatic, perhaps. By contrast, even though it was a blatant contravention of the principle of sovereignty that many in the so-called global south will undoubtedly hold to be sacrosanct, they have also distanced themselves from Western narratives of the war. Their response has been quite categoric. Simply, this is not our war. Nor was this order truly international. Yes, it eventually became global in scope, 
but it is difficult to believe it was intended to be equal as well. Instead, it was predicated on the dominance of Anglophone and more broadly, European power. Sure, the principles of the liberal international order would give rise to organisations that were global in coverage, such as the Bretton Woods institutions of the IMF and the World Bank. But in reality, they were dominated by the US and Western Europe. One need look no further than the controversies surrounding redistribution of quota allocations or voting rights in these institutions to see the point. Now, the liberal international order peaked at the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union, the primary threat to the Western system, was vanquished and the end of history triumphantly proclaimed, with free markets and liberal democracy determined to be the terminus of ideological evolution. In fact, it not only peaked during this time, it became liberalism on steroids. The unipolar moment accelerated the pace of globalization. Liberal norms of democracy, free markets, and human rights animated institutions of global governance. Perhaps the most striking demonstration of this was the accession of China into the WTO in 2002 which was welcomed in many Western, especially American intellectual and policy circles as a means through which authoritarian China would democratize. Meanwhile, Western powers articulated norms such as humanitarian intervention with newfound zeal, arguing for the protection of universal values. But in doing so, they were in fact qualifying the foundational principle of sovereignty upon which the post-war global order was built. And they were doing it in ways that many from the global south disagreed with. To them, while these principles may have appeared to be universal in essence and global in reach, in reality, they were but an extension of Western cultural hegemony, parlayed to promote Western political and economic interests. In contrast to the liberal international order, the concept of a rules-based order downplays values while foregrounding rules, or so it seems. It is, in that sense, not an order defined by the political or value systems of its architects, but by laws, principles and institutions that govern interactions between its constituent states. Yet, as I mentioned earlier, in some cases, rules are not unambiguous. Case in point, the US and China both claim to adhere to the law of the sea. But the Chinese interpretation of it in the South China Sea departs from convention, while the US has not yet ratified the agreement on the law of the sea. Indeed, the focus on rules is still confronted by inconvenient yet important and politically loaded questions. Whose rules? Who makes them? Are they truly value neutral? Do they enjoy universal acceptance? Do they reflect the reality of the day? Now that we have established what the global order is, what's and all, I would like to turn our attention to the challenges it faces. Let's begin with the most obvious, the Russia-Ukraine war. To be sure, talk of the erosion, if not demise, of the global order was already making rounds prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, which itself had antecedents in the annexation of Crimea eight years earlier, in 2014. 
but it has definitely gathered pace since then. At any rate, the invasion was not just about Russia's blatant disregard for the principle of sovereignty and territorial integrity of another uh, neighbouring state. It was also a major disruption to food and energy security, not to mention established global supply chains. But beyond the immediacy of that war, there are other factors at play that have dampened enthusiasm for the prevailing order and precipitated calls for its reform, if not transformation. For some, for many in fact, arguably the single most important structural catalyst of change would be the rise of China as a financial and economic power on the global stage. <coughs> we all know the story well. Following the decision to reform and open up in December 1978, hundreds of millions of Chinese have escaped poverty within a generation. The Chinese economy has transformed from global backwater to factory of the world and now a technological powerhouse. China is already leading the world in several key technologies that underpin the 21st century economy. Electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, robotics and advanced materials, to name four. China's annual GDP growth rate has averaged almost 9% from 1989 to 2022, although it admittedly started from a low base and built momentum on the back of first, labour-intensive low-end manufacturing exports and second, massive investments, perhaps over-investment, particularly in infrastructure and real estate. Needless to say, both are in trouble now. More importantly, enabled by its size and growing economic and military strength, China under Xi Jinping is stepping forward to further chip away at the preponderant position of the US by championing alternative conceptions of international order and expanding its own influence. China's international strategy to achieve this has three facets to it. First, forging new ties and reinforcing old ones, particularly with the Global South. Second, promoting new international frameworks such as the AIIB, BRICS and the SCO. And third, articulating their own set of normative concepts to challenge the liberal international order such as Community of Shared Futures for Mankind, Global Development Initiative, Global Security Initiative, and Global Civilization Initiative. How successful these efforts have been or will be is, of course, a separate matter. The idea is that in its efforts to reject the alleged Cold War mentality and camp-based confrontation of the US, China is presenting alternatives to the developing world as it tries to send the message that America and the wider Western world should no longer enjoy the prerogative to set standards and write the rules of everything from global trade and finance to who gets to define, much less impose, democracy. It should not be a surprise to find that these alternatives have diplomatic traction in the global south. But they do beg the question whether China is basically replacing an America-centric order with a Sino-centric one, as Xi Jinping seeks, to, seeks the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by, if I may, making China great again. 
The nature of the challenge posed by China actually speaks to a larger issue, and that is the sense that economic liberalism and globalization has not only widened the divide between rich and poor within societies in the global north, but also between them and the rest of the world. This is evident, for instance, in ongoing debates over the global effort to fight the climate crisis, where views of the developing economies and those of developed economies have differed sharply as to who should bear how much of the burden to reduce emissions. In my previous lecture, I referred to civilizational states. This is relevant in the case of China, obviously, but also several others, like India, Russia, and Turkey. What we should note is that while there is certainly no love lost between them, what they do have in common is disdain for the imposition of Western values in the name of universality. For them, the problem with the prevailing order is that it is more vertical and hierarchical than horizontal, which to them would be a more accurate reflection of the distribution of power, wealth and ideas that exist today. Importantly, this view resonates even among global South countries that the US would consider friends. Third, the changing role of America, the country that everyone loves to hate and hates to love. It is in vogue these days to talk about American decline and the deleterious effect that has on the prevailing order. After all, if the one underwriting it is growing weak, while others are rising and intent on challenging it, it stands to reason that the intuitive net effect will be the erosion of the global order. There are, however, a couple of assumptions behind this hypothesis of American declinism that should be unpacked for further clarity. Let's consider a few data points. On military expenditure, at more than $800 billion this year, it is well known that the US outspends virtually everyone else on defence. To be sure, China is intent on closing the gap and has been increasing its defence spending in recent years on the back of economic growth. But there are a few things I need to quickly highlight here. First, China spends more on public security than defence. In other words, Beijing is more concerned about internal security than it is about external security. Second, while China's defence capabilities in some areas are exceeding those of the US by raw measures, for example, the Chinese Navy has more ships than the US Navy, as I always tell my colleagues when they ask me about where to publish their research, the name of the game is quality, quality, quality. The US military remains more advanced and more experienced than China's. This is a fact that President Xi Jinping is only too aware of. Hence, his constant reminders about combat readiness and his efforts to improve professionalism and weed out corruption in the brass. And third, while China may wish to close the gap on the US and is working hard to do so, the US is not standing still. But can the US sustain this huge expenditure given the size of its debt? which currently stands at a whopping $33 trillion and counting. 
Now, to be sure, the, sustainable, the sustainability of today's debt-driven U.S. economic model poses serious long-term problems that Americans will have to grapple with. For now, though, the U.S. has been able to mitigate this to some extent by borrowing. Speaking of which, the dominance of the U.S. dollar, both in global transactions and as the primary global reserve currency, has made borrowing that much easier. Simply put, there remains a huge appetite globally for US dollars and treasury bonds. This is what a former French finance minister, whose name, by the way, I cannot pronounce and will not try, um, once called America's exorbitant privilege. According to the IMF, the US dollar's share of global currency reserves stands at just under 60% in 2023, about 59.4, something like that. According to SWIFT, the US dollar accounts for about 42% of global payments. We know that US dominance of the international financial system has been a source of discomfort for some emerging economies, and they are trying to diversify because of this. China, in particular, has been aiming to increase its own currency's market share, which currently stands in a region of 2.5% for both global reserves and transactions. Now, it is true that the US dollar share has been decreasing over the last two decades. It stood at around 71-72% to 72 in the early 2000s. But alas, it has not quite been the case that the Chinese yuan has benefited from this decline. Rather, it has been the euro, the Japanese yen, and the British pound that has benefited most. While some may question whether the US is still committed to a leadership role in the global order, uh, in the global order it was instrumental in creating, or whether it is able to still undertake that responsibility, others are unnerved by what the US is doing with its exorbitant privilege. Commonly cited examples are the use of sanctions as well as the weaponization of the US financial system's preeminence in global commerce. The most recent targets are obviously Russia and to a lesser extent China, as we know. But even America's European allies have periodically cried foul over Washington's efforts to dictate how their companies and central banks conduct business in the shadow of a US-imposed sanctions regime which according to the Global Sanctions Database has increased from two active sanctions in 1950 to over 60 today. Furthermore, the record of US participation in multilateral institutions where they play a key role has often been less than virtuous or less than stellar. American contributions to the UN have been inconsistent it refuses to appoint judges to the appellate body of the WTO, is possessive about its veto in the IMF, and practically dictates affairs in the World Bank. To illustrate this last point, let me read an excerpt from a book titled The World Bank, Its First Half Century. Throughout the history of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which later became the World Bank, the United States has been the largest shareholder and the most influential member country. U.S. support for, pressure on, and criticisms of the bank have been central to its growth and the evolution of its policies, programs, and practices." Unquote. 
Just so you know, this volume was actually commissioned by the World Bank as an institutional history of itself. Indeed, it is for this reason that the newly expanded BRICS has coalesced around the idea of de-dollarisation. Members of the BRICS are looking to jointly expand the bloc's influence such that it might serve as a counterweight to the US-led financial order, even though its realistic prospects for success must surely be another matter altogether. Happy to discuss this uh, in greater detail in the Q&A. And it's not only in the realm of economics and finance that one detects unease among countries outside of the global north. Many have also expressed misgivings towards efforts to impose democratic norms and regime change, usually on the part of the US, and especially when it is pursued with evangelistic and ideological zeal. The financial crisis of 2008, however, did give pause, not least in how it seeded doubts in the minds, not just of Americans, but many in the global community as well, as to the future of America's role in global affairs. To be clear, the issue was not whether the US had entered a state of terminal decline, as some were suggesting. It should be obvious by now that this is not a view that I subscribe to, simply because the data doesn't bear it out but rather how much blood and treasure the US was now prepared to expend for the sake of upholding the global order. In other words, it is not a question of whether the US can still play, a, can still play that leading role, but whether they want to, and if so, how are they going to do it? The arrival of Donald Trump in the White House on the wave of populist nationalism catalyzed further doubt. The absence of American leadership was palpable during the Trump years, when the US unilaterally withdrew from international commitments such as the INF, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Paris Climate Agreement, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and the TPP. It threatened to abandon long-standing allies such as NATO. Notwithstanding the Biden administration's efforts to reassert American leadership, the perception remains that American interest in the world has declined. As the US gears up for another presidential election, a Trump return to the Oval Office could well have far-reaching consequences for global order. But lest we forget, he was by no means the only person in the last two election campaigns who questioned America's tradition, traditional contribution to global affairs. Democrats like Bernie Sanders, who is actually an independent, uh, and Elizabeth Warren advocated similar introspection and retrenchment, albeit in less bombastic fashion. Meanwhile, as presidential candidate Hillary Clinton famously opposed the TPP, despite being the architect of that very agreement when she was Secretary of State. Now, given the magnitude of these challenges, the global order may indeed be at an inflection point. So where are things headed? While the picture remains yet unclear because the script is still unfolding, I think some broad contours can be discerned. Let me outline four. First, the emerging new global order will be more multipolar, albeit asymmetric. Indeed, not all the poles will be the same. The US will still be a consequential player 
in some areas, probably the most consequential player for the, for the foreseeable future. But it can no longer be assumed that it is both able and willing to command overwhelming dominance, or in fact, to exercise overwhelming dominance. As considerable as they are, American influence and resources are being stretched even as their leaders have to deal with domestic opinion calling for the prioritization of the economy and international opinion that questions America's approach to the world and exercise of power in it. Meanwhile, others have emerged to seek larger roles. The EU and European powers like Germany and France may themselves have vested interests in the prevailing order, but in certain areas, they have distanced themselves from the US. The rise of China and India pose robust challenges to the Western liberal economic and political models in different ways. And then there is Russia, of course, who by their actions in Ukraine are effectively thumbing their noses at the global order. At the same time, we are also witnessing the resurgence of a host of regional powers, Japan, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Brazil, Indonesia, the list goes on. Uh, they are all increasingly vocal and active in their respective regions, seeking to assert greater influence. Describing what is unfolding, Robert Blackwell and Thomas Wright, two prominent American foreign policy intellectuals, have written, the world has moved away from a Kissingerian standard of world order in which nations work within the same set of constraints and aspire to meet the same set of rules toward a model where many countries choose their own paths to order without much reference to the views of others." Unquote. Second, the future world will not be a seamless reflection of the values of the previous order. Sure, some principles like sovereignty and international law will still command great purchase, but others, such as liberal democracy, free markets and human rights, will increasingly be subjected to contention. And because it will be a multipolar system, it follows that the norms and values that states will look to to govern their interactions will derive not just from one preponderant power. Instead, it will have to reflect a more diverse range of views and perspectives that would invariably represent what will be a more complex multipolar order. Third, certain aspects of globalization that we have come to be familiar with will change. With the steady drumbeat of de-risking and onshoring in the context of US-China rivalry, it has become fashionable to talk about deglobalization. Free trade and the free flow of capital, cornerstones of the Western liberal economic system, are coming under stress for two reasons. First, the securitization of economic interdependence. After years of expanding and deepening trade and investment ties, the two largest economies of the world are now delinking in the name of national security. Second, populism. While the liberal economic system has unquestionably enlarged the middle class in the global south, it is perceived to have weakened the middle class in the global north, and that middle class is now pushing back. The election of Donald Trump, Brexit, and the growing popularity of right-wing movements in Central and Eastern Europe have all been part of this broader trend towards populist nationalism that is mobilizing against globalization. And don't forget, before Trump, 
Before Brexit, there was already the Occupy movement, which saw global mobilisation of various left-leaning populist groups against inequality blamed on large corporations and the international financial system. Finally, the architecture underpinning the new global order will find expression in a network of multiple overlapping institutions that reflect diffuse and divergent preferences and priorities of its constituent states. In particular, regional architectures and institutions and minilaterals will assume greater importance in the absence of will and consensus at the global level. This is not to say that global institutions will disappear. Rather, the landscape will simply become more complicated. So by way of this shift, we now turn our attention to Southeast Asia and to ASEAN, this most enigmatic of regional organisations, and its efforts to both establish and manage regional order to advance the collective interests of disparate member states against the backdrop of a global order in a state of flux. Southeast Asia has benefited greatly from the prevailing global order. For at least the last three decades, longer in some cases, countries of the region have experienced a period of sufficient peace and stability to allow their economies to develop with varying degrees of success. That ASEAN itself is invested in an order that is rules-based should be evident from the organization's founding documents as well as its charter, through which they have committed to the rule of law, principles of the UN Charter, and peaceful settlement of disputes. However, commitment to a rules-based order does not automatically mean commitment to the rules-based order. What I mean is that for Southeast Asia, it has been about building rules that are fit for purpose for its own geopolitical environment and to fill to fulfill the overarching strategic objective of regional order building, which was, is, and will in the future still be the management of disparate and at times divisive interests, not only among Southeast Asian states, but between them and external powers as well. In thinking about how Southeast Asia can achieve this, it would do us well to remember that from a historical perspective, the region has been in this position before, of having to deal with sweeping changes affecting order in their backyard. This may indeed be a cliché, but it doesn't make it any less true. Southeast Asia's present has very much to do with how it interacted with, managed and localised external influences in its past. From these interactions, several different regional orders arose, Cynic, Indic, Persian and Islamic, to name a few, that emanated from power centres such as Ming China, Majapahit and Mataram in Java, Ayutthaya in Siam, and Pasai in northern Sumatra. This was later followed by the colonial order predicated on new European power centres that plucked their Southeast Asian colonies into networks of transnational trade and when the Industrial Revolution took off, to early global supply chains. In the immediate years after independence, during the first two decades of the Cold War, many Southeast Asian states, new Southeast Asian states, even tried to distance themselves from both the American capitalist order and the Soviet communist order 
choosing instead to be part of a broader non-aligned movement. Yet perhaps most significant for our purposes was how Southeast Asian states responded collectively to shifting geopolitical winds by corralling together as ASEAN, a multilateral organisation initially formed to manage relations between its members, but soon after found itself absorbed by the need to create strategic space and manage a fast-evolving regional order in a way that preserved their autonomy. In the aftermath of Indonesian confrontation against Malaysia and Singapore in the early 1960s, a platform for reconciliation was required to manage lingering distrust after Jakarta's change of government and policy direction. ASEAN was created in 1967 for that purpose. In the face of US withdrawal from the region and the fall of Saigon in the mid-1970s, the first ASEAN summit convened in Bali and the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation was conceived and signed. That treaty now has, I believe, 54 signatories, the most recent being Kuwait, Panama and Serbia. To forestall the domino effect, ASEAN rallied together to oppose Vietnamese aggression against Kampuchea in the 1980s, paving the way for the Paris Peace Accords that brought an end to the Third Indochina War. Amidst uncertainties at the end of the Cold War, ASEAN formed the ARF, ASEAN Regional Forum, to frame discussions and debates on the shape of the post-Cold War order in the Asia-Pacific. In the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, the idea of an ASEAN community was seeded and eventually came into being. I could go on, but I think you get my drift. Is ASEAN perfect? Of course not. Did it occasionally drop the ball along the way? Definitely. Could ASEAN have done better? Surely. But a larger point is this. In the midst of significant geopolitical changes throughout its modern history, Southeast Asia has never been passive bystanders, allowing the region to be swept up or swept away by then. And so it is that in the face of considerable changes in their external environment today, Southeast Asia once again finds its own regional order being challenged, and it's being challenged in a number of ways. First, continued, continued American disinterest in global trade will invariably affect Southeast Asia, a region that is deeply plucked into international trading networks. Second, the intensification of rivalry among great powers has, among other things, given rise to what some scholars term institutional balancing. This refers to efforts by China to create new institutions to challenge American leadership and dominance of prevailing ones. Needless to say, this has potential impact on ASEAN, putatively the premier institution for Southeast Asia. This leads me to my third point. If we accept that the world is transitioning to some kind of new order for all the reasons I enumerated earlier, it follows that because of what is at stake, ASEAN must consider how to exercise agency in terms of making, modifying and shaping, or if necessary, preserving the rules, not least on its own turf. The evolution of the Indo-Pacific as a strategic concept illustrates this dilemma. <coughs> Geographically, Southeast Asia lies smack in the centre of the Indo-Pacific by virtue of its location straddling the Pacific and Indian Oceans. 
but this does not ipso facto make it central politically. Now, location, location, location might be the determining factor for property valuation in our booming real estate market today, but not quite when it comes to the politics of geopolitics. While there have been earlier iterations of an Indo-Pacific concept, including an Indonesian version, it was when President Trump introduced his vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific in late 2017 that the idea started to gain serious traction. Since then, the Indo-Pacific has become signal strategic nomenclature for our region. With the exception of China, all the key actors have articulated an Indo-Pacific policy, strategy, tilt or vision. To ensure it has skin in the game, ASEAN unveiled its own AOIP, ASEAN Outlook on the Indo-Pacific, in, I believe, 2019. It had to do so in order to make sure that ASEAN was, if not central, then at least relevant and visible at the table. This, of course, brings us to the topic of ASEAN centrality, that bewildering concept at the heart of ASEAN's conception of order, and that at once holds out hope but also flatters to deceive. Detractors dismiss it as nothing more than chimeric fiction. Champions mistake it for incontrovertible fact. Like most things in life, the truth prob probably lies somewhere in between. Ask anyone familiar with ASEAN what ASEAN centrality means, and chances are they will instinctively point to the organization's convening power in the first instance. The ASEAN circuit provides useful platforms where most, if not all, major powers regularly meet. This is no mean feat, all the more so given the divisive geopolitical climate today. But the question ASEAN should ask is whether it is satisfied for such performative elements to be an end in itself, or whether they are but means to a larger end of advancing Southeast Asia's collective strategic objectives and interests. To that end, I invite us to cast our minds back some 40 years to the Kampuchean conflict, then comprising five members, and at some point six uh, with Brunei, ASEAN was compelled to step up its proactivism as regional interests threatened to be overwhelmed by those of external powers. ASEAN centrality was on display not in the resolution of the conflict per se, that came about through other larger forces at work, but rather by member states overcoming deep differences to coalesce around shared objectives and importantly, to coordinate efforts towards achieving them. And the uh, the discipline that they maintain over uh, more than 10 years of uh, sticking to the script, so to speak. We should also be circumspect in how we interpret the acknowledgement of ASEAN centrality by major powers. It goes without saying that it is good these powers all, pro all profess support for ASEAN centrality. But we should still ask, why do they, who would intuitively want to be at the centre of things, accept and allow this collection of small and medium-sized states to claim centrality. There are, I think, essentially two reasons. First, ASEAN serves a purpose for them. Second, there is no cost to them acknowledging ASEAN centrality. Therein lies the tension between possibilities and constraints for ASEAN 
insofar as centrality is concerned. Of course, we all hope that ASEAN can sharpen its strategic proficiency to get ahead of the new and fast-evolving global and regional landscape. After all, it managed to do that in the past. But at the same time, this requires it to be realistic about what its constraints are and what it can or cannot achieve, particularly now with 10 members and possibly an 11th on the way. So how about Singapore and our options as a small state caught up in these massive global transitions? First and foremost, we have to continue our efforts to reinforce the importance of rule of law and international law in our foreign policy. I noted earlier that the rules-based order can be somewhat amorphous, but for Singapore, we have to be very clear about what our understanding of it is. At its heart, it has to do with the foundational and non-negotiable principles of sovereignty and the rule of law. Second, we should continue to place emphasis on international institutions and inclusive multilateralism, foremost of which should be ASEAN, right in our own backyard. Multilateralism has proven a crucial, if imperfect, vehicle through which Singapore has been able to amplify our voice in order to do what we can to shape our external environment. And if I may say so, ASEAN is for obvious reasons more important than most in that regard. Finally, to expand our economic space, Singapore must also continue to stress the importance of an open global economy and trading system. Even before independence, our lifeline has, had been international trade. We must continue to be plugged into global networks and where opportunities arise to create new ones. Because of limited resources, we must build and nourish strategic partnerships in areas of national priority or where we have competitive advantages to bring to the table. Uh, all this is nothing new to, to all of you, I'm sure, but I think it's important to, to reiterate and reinforce those points. Okay, so let me, let me conclude. Whatever its shortcomings, the US-led global order with its genesis in the aftermath of the Second World War and reinforced after the Cold War has benefited many, including Singapore and Southeast Asia. That is a fact. But as it stands today, this order no longer reflects the present distribution of power and influence globally, nor do the American people appear as enthusiastic as in the past to have their national wealth spent to uphold it. At the end of the day then, what were thought to be widely accepted rules and values as to how international affairs should be managed may no longer be as widely accepted if they ever really were in the first place. This is also a fact. At the end of the Cold War, the American intellectual Francis Fukuyama famously pronounced the triumph of liberal democracy that would bring an end to history. Roughly 130 years earlier, a Prussian socialist journalist by the name of Karl Marx made a similar claim. But in that case, he argued that history will reach its apogee with com communism. Needless to say, both prognoses have been off the mark so far. Since history hasn't in fact ended, uh, who knows what the future will hold. Yeah? But both were correct, I think, 
in their characterization of history as an evolutionary process. Although I disagree, it is as linear as they may have made it out to be. So I'm not sure whether that makes me a Marxist or not, but there you go. Returning to Gramsci, where we started this afternoon, the sense of global order today are perhaps not so much eroding or being destroyed, ushering in a time of monsters as it were, but rather undergoing something of a paradigm shift towards a new stage in its evolution. This is because what we know as the global order was never a coherent system of nicely synergized and compacted parts in the first place. It was always amorphous, given to different interpretations according to different interests and objectives. Yet because of this, together with ASEAN neighbours, Singapore must now adjust to these very evolving configurations and realities. And we must do so with a clear sense of both national and regional interests. Even better, if ASEAN can collectively work together to proactively get ahead of them. Thank you for your attention. Look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Professor Liao. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please step up to the mic to ask your questions. May I now invite Professor Barry Desker, Distinguished Fellow at S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, to start the Q&A session. Uh, Professor Desker, please. Good afternoon. We've had a fascinating and insightful lecture by Professor Joseph Liao this afternoon. I shall not attempt to repeat the lecture or to give my own lecture. What I will do is to highlight three takeaways which I took from this lecture. The first is Professor Lau highlighted that the global order built by the United States, the preeminent power after the Second World War, is now under challenge. It no longer represents the present distribution of power and influence. The second key point is that the emerging new global order is multipolar and asymmetrical. Norms and values will not derive from one predominant power. We have multiple overlapping institutions and the rise of regional institutions, also intense rivalries among great powers. In this context, in the Southeast Asian region, and this brings me to my third point, there is a need for ASEAN to exercise agency, to shape the rules, especially with respect to the region. The significance of ASEAN centrality was highlighted by Joseph Liao. He emphasized ASEAN's convening power, but raised the question whether it is a means to an end. My reaction to this is that scholars, academics, statesmen, and diplomats seek a world of order. What, however, 
if we are heading for a world of disorder, in a, a world of intense power competition, a shift away from consensus and international governance by norms and values, except as a tool to undermine your opponents. And instead, there is an increasing emphasis on transactional relationships. In this context, I may already see it in the region, where ASEAN states are taking divergent positions, whether it is on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the South China Sea issue, and the Israel-Hamas war. The emphasis has been, and we always reiterate it, ASEAN centrality. That ASEAN is in the driver's seat, shaping regional rules and outcomes. But if I may be politically incorrect, could ASEAN be merely a chauffeur as regional developments are being shaped by great power competition? The question I therefore pose is, how should Singapore act in such a scenario? Thanks, uh, Barry, for that question. Uh, that's another lecture, and I shall start now. <laughs> no, just, just kidding. Um, but uh, very briefly, I think that's a very uh, pertinent point, and uh, I think you, you really sort of uh, nailed that. Uh, perhaps even existential, if I may, existential issue for, for ASEAN, because it it speaks to this question of ASEAN's relevance. Right? Um, I think my, my view is that, first and foremost, ASEAN and uh, certainly Singapore, we have to be realistic about, as I mentioned in my lecture, we have to be realistic about the, the limitations and constraints that, uh, that we all have. Yeah. Um, I had alluded to what ASEAN managed to do uh, successfully, and a number of you, uh, King Yong, yourself, uh, Barry, were very much uh, involved in that process in, in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I ask myself whether that was a, not just a very different era, but a very different ASEAN. Right? It was five, uh, the original five member states that um, through a, a period um, of uh, then about uh, two decades, right, um, managed to create this uh, understanding. I wouldn't go so far to say that it was a common identity. I have issues with um, people who argue that somehow there's some sort of uh, 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 identity that has emerged, that has gelled uh, the entire region together. But uh, certainly an understanding of uh, each other's interests and the uh, importance uh, of acknowledging that everyone was on the same boat uh, together. Um, that has become very interest. That, that has become very difficult to retain in the con in, in my sense, in, in my view, it's become very difficult to retain with the ASEAN of today, which is much more diverse, which is larger, and uh, this is why some people, um, in the prospect of a further expansion of ASEAN, is is discussed. In there, there are even. Uh, uh, greater concerns uh, that some people might have. So I think uh, first we have to bear in mind the, the limitations uh, that, uh, that ASEAN has. And ironically, the better a sense of the limitations we have, 
the better our chance of actually getting things done. Um, second, which is probably a more um, uh, abstract uh, uh, response, I think that at the end of the day, um, we will all be disappointed if we are of the view that states can somehow transcend uh, their interests and the, the, the reality of the nature of uh, global politics, which to me at least is still very much centred on power and exercise of power, um, to believe that um, you, can, you can have that sort of uh, very uh, deep kind of uh, what constructivists will call uh, identity that brings every, everyone together. Yeah? I think uh, my own view is that is uh, a very risky uh, a view of the world, a very risky approach. And in fact, the developments that you, you had pointed out, uh, Barry, just reminds us again about how difficult it is just to foster uh, uh, understanding among uh, uh, member states in, in ASEAN about what are each other's core interests, let alone trying to transcend that. Um, so, so I would, I would uh, caution again against that. Could I invite questions from the floor? There are four mics around uh, the auditorium. Please head directly to our mic. Could you give your name and affiliation at the beginning, please? No, we'd like you to have, be on record because uh, there are people who are listening on Zoom back home. Yeah, sorry, it was just the microphone. But uh, I hope this is still legible for most. Uh, my name is Ming Son. Well, I'm actually talking to my boss, technically. Uh, I'm his research assistant uh, from Nanyang Technological <laughs> University. But uh, I have two questions that relate to two parts of the lecture. I think the first is related to the war order that you've, talk on, you've spoken about. I think the one thing that I have my own sort of grievance about this is that we talk about the death of globalization as it is, but the one thing that hasn't changed in all countries universally is that the acceptance of capitalism. So the market has grown ever more and more and more bigger, even though there is a, technically a great power competition. These two countries are struggling to untangle themselves from the market. Um, I think the, the US tried to uh, decouple itself, but the most they can do is de-risk, and now they are not even thinking about that much anymore. Um, so I think that's the question, the first question I would like to address is, is it really uh, unraveling this globalization when capitalism in the market itself is spreading, uh, and I don't think any countries in the world really deny this, even the Chinese. Um, the second question is I'd like to think, uh, I'd like to ask is related to the Southeast Asian region. Um, I just wanted to circle back to the history of Southeast Asia, where I think regional dynamics once plays a critical part. Uh, in the past, um, it was the Third Indochina War between the Thailand, between Thailand, Vietnam, and Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, do you think now that these great power competitions have sort of returned to the region with a lot of tectonic shifts in the region, where the majority of US treaty allies are actually shifting towards China? whereas the communist one is actually shifting towards the US. 
how would this really affect sort of uh, the strategic space of the smaller states in the region, including Singapore? So these are two, two questions. Thank you. Oh, please. Okay, thanks, uh, Min Son. I take your second question first. Um, I, I <laughs> so Kong uh, Yun Fong is not here because he and I are part of this project where we are trying to sort of um, map the the or in fact quantify the the, the sort of uh, uh, shifts right of Southeast Asian states in their relations between the the US and and China. But um, the reality is that what we have found is that there's uh, quite heavy concentration in the middle. Yeah. So, so I don't think, uh, I mean, it's, I, I read a lot of reports about people saying that, um, you know, uh, this and that Southeast Asian country has gone with uh, China or gone with the United States. But I'm not quite sure if you really try to look at the data that the data bears it out. I think uh, it speaks to the kind of um, uh, latitude that Southeast Asian countries want you know, uh, to, to exercise and are actively exercising. Now, that is not to say that um, they, won't, they will not find themselves uh, squeezed more and more. That's another discussion, and uh, I've, I've mentioned before um, that that is a concern, right? That the, the, the space that they have to manoeuvre might, might start to, to shrink. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think uh, any of the Southeast Asian countries uh, are entirely in one uh, camp uh, or, the, or the other. Now, to your first question uh, about the, the purported death of uh, globalization and the sort of uh, paradox, right? Uh, because uh, as far as markets are concerned, it's very much globalizing. I think you're absolutely right. I, don't, I think the people who who talk about the death of globalization are being a bit uh, dramatic uh, about it. I think the issue is not the death of globalization. The issue, to my mind, is really how uh, the most powerful um, economy and uh, military power, which is the US, is using that, that power. Yeah? Um, and uh, again, if you look at, if you look at the, the I alluded to it in my speech. You look at the BRICS. Let's set aside for a while whether or not it will actually be, actually be a success, which personally I don't think it will. Um, but why did they coalesce the way they did uh, in the first place? Because you think about it, um, initially how did the BRICS come about? The BRICS came about because um, you know, uh, some banker, uh, uh, Jim O'Neill, right, uh, from Goldman Sachs, mm -hmm. sort of just listed down um, emerging economies to look out for, right? And then um, it was uh, uh, BRIC first, right? South Africa came later. Um, but then fast forward to today, it's become this uh, serious uh, effort uh, uh, at challenging American economic dominance. And I think that, that, is, that is the, the primary issue, more so than uh, deglobalization. It is the fact that we are, it's the reverse, right? It's, we are so globalized, but at the same time, so much of it hinges on uh, one power that any fluctuation in the, inf in, uh, any inflation in that power, any fluctuation of interest rates in that economy, it affects everyone to a very extensive uh, degree, right? And then uh, also how it uses that power in terms of, um, um, uh, sanctions and uh, compelling states to, to, 
to behave this way or that way, um, and how they behave in multilateral institutions as well. Yeah, so I think that more so than you know this whole this abstract idea of um, the death of globalization is the issue uh, of concern for for everyone. Thank you, Proof. So my name is Kaiser. I'm a graduate student from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. So I have a very brief question towards the drivers behind China's uh, trying to build new uh, institutions and uh, initiatives. So one explanation could be that uh, as you mentioned in, during the lecture, it's in, institutional balance against American. But uh, there has a saying says that uh, China proposed, uh, there has a thing called a group of friends of the global development initiatives, uh, group of friends. So something like this, it's, uh, um, you cannot interpret it, it uh, in, um, immediately as a kind of against uh, the uh, current institutional um, establishment. So how can we explain um, the drivers behind uh, this uh, sort of uh, uh, trying to establish new initiatives? Thank you. Okay, um, uh, thanks for the question. I think that um, Chai, you know, it's kind of like um, to be the, the popular uh, kid, you must have friends around you, right? So uh, the United States had that. China, as a mark of its status, I think it's, it's quite important. But, but aside from that, I think, I think the reason why China um, is prepared to be so in heavily invested in the global order um, stems, stems from, a, a, I think, a few things. First, is that they want to be able to shape the discourse. Yeah? And they feel that they've reached a point in their development where they have the capacity to do that and the influence uh, globally to do that. Yeah? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I think uh, we need to remember that not too long ago, uh, a very different China in the 50s and the 60s was also a very lonely China. China did not have friends in the, in the 50s uh, and 60s. It was, for a period, it was part of the, the Soviet sort of camp, but uh, it certainly didn't want to be a vessel of the Soviets, and then uh, that relationship broke. China was very much uh, on its own, which is why when China subsequently uh, joined uh, the United Nations, it was a major, major uh, thing uh, for them. Yeah. So, so um, I think uh, this, this idea now of China um, being plucked into uh, the world and together with, with other countries uh, and uh, certainly taking the lead on a number of things, I think is very important uh, uh, for, for them. And then uh, thirdly, I think it is also the case that China historically has always had concerns about foreign encroachment and how um, China, you know, the, the whole uh, 100 years of humiliation uh, psyche, right, that they had to go through, right, the whole idea that they were dictated to by an outside world. So the question now is, rather than subject ourselves to that, we should come up with the, the norms, the rules, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, 
that are in line with our own interests and our own aspirations. And uh, as it turns out, a lot of that narrative has appealed to other countries as well, who were subject to the same kind of uh, you know, colonialism, you know, for, for example. Yeah. So I think for, for, for these number of reasons, I think uh, China is very serious about um, its role in the international community. Well, we have, uh, from those who are listening at home, uh, a question which actually uh, raises uh, issues regarding what is actually happening with regard to BRICS. The point is made, that is it talk rather than action? Mm. What actually has been implemented so far? Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, BRICS is uh, very ambitious. I think uh, the reason uh, why these, uh, so now there are 11 of them, right? Uh, started with uh, four, then five, and then another six, there are 11 of them. The reason why they, they um, uh, came together was uh, a shared uh, concern for the dominance of the, of the United States. But I think BRICS, uh, there are some structural challenges that the organization will encounter, is already encountering. Number one, it may be 11 countries, but primarily it's one, China, right? which uh, commands the lion's share of the economic growth and the wealth uh, of, of, the, of the 11 countries. Um, problem number two, the level of trade, I don't have the data with me here now, but the level of trade between BRICS countries is actually not very high. It's actually not very high. It's actually quite low. Yeah, it's actually quite low. Um, just, uh, just, just to give you, give you an example, um, the, in the case of um, uh, China and Argentina, one of the newer members of, of the BRICS, right? They, I think a, a year ago, a year or two ago, they concluded a currency swap um, of uh, $8 billion. Whereas China and South Korea had uh, arranged a currency swap, uh, I think, 2014, 2015, something like that, uh, already to the tune of 20 plus uh, 30 billion dollars. Yeah. So the, the magnitude of, so my point is, from China's perspective, their main economic uh, partners are not in BRICS, you know, but outside uh, of BRICS. That's the second point. And the third point is a lot of the countries within the BRICS, primarily China and India, really, um, have political issues uh, with each other. Yeah? So uh, managing that, uh, that relationship is going to be very tricky. In fact, if I may say so, there's a lesson for, for that organization to learn from ASEAN. Because when ASEAN was formed, the whole intent of ASEAN was to create a mechanism to manage relationships, at that point, difficult relationships between member states. Yeah, so maybe they should have a talk with uh, ASEAN about how to, how to do that. <laughs> Please. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Okay. Good afternoon, Professor. Uh, my name is Dennis. I'm a master's student from RSIS. And I would like to ask a question. Uh, first of all, I'm very sorry if my question is very depressing. I would like to ask regarding how ASEAN should be moving forward, or even is it even possible to moving forward in this chaotic and the changing global order? As we know that ASEAN heavily rely upon the willingness and the political wills of its member states to move in its, some direction at all. 
But as we have seen, especially in 2012, the failure to create a joint communique on the South China Sea, we see that the extra regional power have a lot of influence on the interest and the direction of the ASEAN member states. With that in mind, I would like to ask that how ASEAN should react? Is it even possible even for ASEAN to react with the divisiveness of its member states? And specifically how Singapore could create this convening power to at the very least move ASEAN forward towards something in response to this changing global order? That's all. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for the question. Um, I think that uh, whether or not ASEAN can uh, uh, pull it off, uh, whether ASEAN can can move forward uh, as, as a group and, uh, and uh, overcome their differences. I think uh, it, it, a lot of it, I feel, depends on what we actually want it to do and what ASEAN actually wants, what ASEAN member states actually want ASEAN to do. Right? Um, I say this because um, I personally feel that it is a mistake to think that ASEAN is like the... that ASEAN has the prerogative on everything that happens in Southeast Asia and that um, we should be, uh, you know, as Barry mentioned, in the driver's seat and uh, setting the direction and dictating uh, everything that happens uh, in our region. I think that some people actually think that, but I don't. I think that would be a recipe for disaster. I think um, ASEAN uh, at this point in time, that is uh, maybe a step uh, too far for the, for the organisation. I mean, we cannot, we cannot dismiss the, the reality of just how different the 10 countries in ASEAN are and how difficult it is to manage uh, the, the relationships uh, between them. Um, I, I always use this example. Um, in, in the past, uh, you, you, I'm sure you, you study ASEAN, you know that uh, there are goodness knows how many meetings right, a thousand meetings, few thousand meetings a year. Um, and then you sort of wonder why is it you need so many meetings uh, in the ASEAN calendar, right? Um, but you look at the issues that ASEAN wants to tackle and you look at the reality that at the start of the discussion, you have 10 countries probably coming at the same issue from 10 different positions. It is not easy to get everyone to the same destination, right? To put it quite simply, you need many meetings for that, right? which to me at least in part explains the necessity for, for all these meet meetings. But the, the larger point is this, that um, we, and I mentioned it earlier also, we have to re be realistic about uh, what ASEAN can and cannot uh, achieve. If we, if we set the bar too high, we set ourselves uh, uh, for, for failure. Of course, we want ASEAN to be able to evolve. And that is something that uh, you know, our, all ASEAN states have to be committed to, right? to grow the organisation, to be more serious, to be more uh, deliberative, uh, and to work harder to uh, align their, their perspectives. I think in the past, in the 80s, uh, you know, when you had those five countries, it was half the size of ASEAN today. But it was not easy for Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, Philippines to align their perspectives uh, with regards to China and, and Vietnam. 
right? In fact, uh, if you remember, the Indonesians and the Malaysians were prepared to go another way uh, on, on this issue of uh, Vietnam, Vietnam and China, right? So, so that's the kind of effort that is required. A related question by Richard Borsak, who was, I recall, for many years, the Wall Street correspondent in the region. He asks, is, is ASEAN going to be pulled down for decades by Myanmar? <laughs> ah. <laughs> I think Myanmar is an issue that has... Uh, uh, somewhat divided uh, the organization. Um, and uh, it's certainly not new. Uh, it's, it's un unfortunately, it's a, in a sense, a replay of, of an old script. Um, but I will, I will raise uh, two, two uh, points, um, sort of polar opposite points for us to consider about this issue. The first is um, you have ASEAN with its five-point consensus trying to stick very closely uh, to it, trying very hard to, to have a, a, a map and mechanisms to, to, to move uh, things towards um, the, the five points. Um, and uh, the junta at this point doesn't seem too interested, right? Their position remains that, you know, until we resolve the, the, the violence, uh, we're not going to be able to talk about this. So, um, so the, the Thais, for their own reasons, have gone off and started a parallel discussion uh, with uh, Myanmar uh, on it, with the, with the junta. Now, I'm not sure um, the, the extent of um, discussion or coordination between the Thai process and the ASEAN process, um, but I feel that there really should be. I think that there really should be uh, efforts to try to at least, um, um, if not align, at least to uh, synchronize and build on each other's uh, efforts in, in that respect. So that's one uh, perspective. The other perspective, uh, it's, it's somewhat controversial, but I'm just putting it there for us to think about. Um, when ASEAN uh, decided to take uh, Myanmar in as a member state in, uh, in the mid-1990s and then, of course, uh, Myanmar joined in 1997. The discussion then, uh, among other things, was uh, the question of uh, if Myanmar doesn't come into the ASEAN fold, um, the, the risk of it sort of gravitating towards uh, China uh, out there um, is, is high and is risky. Yeah? So, as, as, um, as difficult a decision as it is because of what was happening or what uh, had happened uh, in Myanmar domestically, the decision in terms of the larger strategic picture was to take in uh, Myanmar. So we fast forward from 1997 uh, to today. The question, maybe we all go home tonight and think about it, the question is uh, ASEAN, uh, Myanmar has certainly benefited from uh, membership in ASEAN. Um, has ASEAN, how much has ASEAN benefited from having Myanmar in ASEAN? Co do a cost-benefit analysis. I won't tell you the answer. I have my own views on that, but, you know, uh, think about it. <laughs> well, we have uh, what, it's probably our final question. Uh, 
Lee Suan uh, from uh, the Yusuf mm. Ishak Institute. Mm. She asks uh, uh, and makes the point that we have talked a lot about how the US-China competition has affected Southeast Asia. Do you see the Israel-Hamas war further complicating the geostrategic dynamics in the region, especially with regards to attitudes towards the US vis-a-vis -vis China? Vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, the simple answer is uh, yes, I think so. I think this will, uh, as, as the situation um, in Gaza unfolds, I think that uh, increasingly it is going to uh, be, a geo, in a sense, a geopolitical issue for us in uh, Southeast Asia uh, in a number of ways, in a number of ways. Uh, the first is we know that in Southeast Asia, there have been extremist groups who are very, very motivated by things happening um, in uh, the, the Middle East. Right? Uh, and in fact, many of these groups have uh, in the past identified uh, the, the plight of the Palestinians as a major uh, uh, issue that they want to uh, agitate uh, in support of. Yeah, so that is going to create uh, challenges, not just security challenges, but really challenges in terms of the, 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 the relationships between uh, communities. Yeah, I think that, that is a very, uh, it's a very important thing to, to bear in mind and, and to keep an eye on. Second is that um, the United States has never been uh, uh, you, you know, uh, unequivocally welcomed uh, power in our region uh, in the first place, in many countries. Uh, I mean, Singapore has very strong relations with them. Uh, Philippines has very strong relations with them. Um, a lot of it is uh, from the perspective of our own uh, interests and our own needs. Um, but other countries, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, um, and there's the hangover from uh, things that happened uh, 20 years ago, right? Uh, the, the aftermath of 9-11 and in particular, the uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, that's, you know, a generation ago, maybe less. Yeah? So it's, it's still very fresh in the minds of many uh, Malaysians, many Indonesians. And I think that script is going to uh, play out again. And that is going to create uh, difficulties for the leaders of these countries. And if I may say so, um, although it's no secret, uh, he's very open about it. Um, in Malaysia, the government in Malaysia and the Prime Minister of Malaysia is unapologetically supportive of the, of the Palestinian cause. He's been so since his Abim days. Yeah? Um, so it's perfectly understandable. But the problem is when you look at other larger uh, geopolitical uh, uh, context and uh, in terms of what the Malaysians can or cannot do with the United States, which has nothing to do, by the way, which may not have anything to do with what's happening in the Middle East, in, you know, South, you know, probably South China Sea, climate change or whatever. Um, the, the political stakes for an incumbent government in Malaysia to be so uh, it, it, uh, it open 
in working with the, with the, the US, it will be an issue. It was an issue 20 years ago, right? Uh, the, the Malaysian government uh, was very much very keen on uh, furthering their relationship with the United States. But the people, the ground, was very anti-US because of the Iraq uh, invasion. And they had to manage it. But the challenge for uh, uh, our neighbours uh, today is that the domestic political configuration today is far more brittle than it was uh, 20 years ago. Yeah, so, so that will be particularly tricky, I think. Thank you, uh, Joe, for your responses during the Q&A. While the lecture focused on uh, international relations theory and a conceptual approach, I think what you did in the Q&A uh, uh, section was to uh, show that you demonstrated a, uh, an understanding of the grounded realities in the region, what we are facing with and how we should respond to it. Could I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker today, Professor Joseph Liao. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Liao and Professor Desker. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click your link on the Facebook feed or scan the QR code on the screen to submit your feedback. Professor Liao's third and last lecture titled, Mind the Gap, Pluralism and Pluralization in Southeast Asia will take place on 27 November. Details will be on our website and IPS Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead.